How are we doing? Good to see you guys. All right, so uh, last few weeks we've been talking about Christ's most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And we've talked about how this sermon is really, if you give a big picture, fly review of the sermon, it's really about one big idea, which is surrender or repentance. You hear that a lot around here at TBC, surrender, repentance. He's really getting into the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he's showing how that gets worked out in everyday life. And so the last couple of weeks, we've talked about really two warnings for Christians. The first warning was uh, warning Christians not to be like the religious hypocrites. So most of the time, whenever you hear sermons preached in church, you hear things like, don't be like the world. But Jesus comes out of the gate in this sermon and says, don't be like the religious people, the hypocrites, who do things to be seen by men. Then in part two of, of chapter six, last week, we talked about how Jesus says, don't be like the world who's obsessed with money and possessions and ambition. And so today, um, we are talking about temptation in a different realm of our lives, which is temptation in relationships. Now, when, before you start to get excited about that, um, we're not talking about like boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. So if you kind of perked up, you can, you can sort of go back to sleep right now if you want. Um, but we're going to talk about temptation in our relationships just in general in the community of, of Christians. So today we come to the most misunderstood, misquoted verse in the Bible. Now, Christians know this verse, and non-Christians know this verse, but we all misuse this verse. Can anyone guess what verse we're talking about? Do you, do you any, any idea? What's that? I can do all things through Christ. No, we're not in Philippians. We're in Matthew. Anybody have an idea what the topic might be? Yeah, don't judge me, right? That's what it is. So the first verse, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verse 1. So the first verse says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, how is this verse normally used by most people? Okay, someone's doing something wrong, and you say something about it, and then they repeat this verse, and unbelievers and believers both use this verse, right? Many think this verse means just go through life and keep your head down and stay out of everyone else's business. That's what most of us think this verse means. People will use this verse for basically everything except murder, right? If anyone's doing anything and someone has something to say about it, they will say, if you're, if you're doing drugs, if you're sleeping around, and, and, and someone confronts you, they'll say, hey, the Bible says not to judge. But do you notice how you... There's always something you can't use that, this verse with, and I would say murder. Like, let's say if someone commits murder, and they confess this to you, and you're just like, oh my gosh, that's horrible, and they're like, hey, don't judge me. Like, that doesn't work. Like, we all know that this idea that you can't judge things runs out at some point. And so murder would definitely be one of those things. And I would just tell you, to, we can back that up further to other things as well. So judge... This does not mean, um, this verse, the word judge does not mean um, what we think it normally means, right? So to judge someone here means to have a judgmental attitude, to be harsh or unloving. So when he says judge, he's not referring to throwing out all standards of right and wrong. 
and saying, we can't, we can't really figure out what right and wrong is, so let's just stay out of everyone's business. That's not what he's talking about. So to judge someone here means to have a judgmental attitude, to be harsh or unloving. John Stott says it like this. To be a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Now, before you guys start doing it right now, what the verse is saying not to do, you're, you're already thinking of somebody when I read that definition. You're thinking of, oh, yeah, that's, that's like so-and-so. It's like, well, listen, just, just stop for that for a moment and just pay attention to what he's saying here. Because sometimes this person, the judgmental person, might be right in what they're saying, but they're wrong in how they're going about it. So there's a way that you can be so right that you're wrong. And so the person who, who is judgmental in these ways often is maybe right in their assessment of a situation. And because they're right in the assessment, they think the way they approach it with those other people, it just doesn't matter. I'll speak truth because this is wrong and this is right and you're doing the wrong thing. And, but this kind of person just loves confronting people. If you know someone or you are someone that just loves to confront people, you'd fall into this category he's talking about. Let's read on in uh, the next verse and, as we shed light on this first verse. Verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying if you're a judgmental kind of person, there's two ways in which this will come back on you. Number one, God will judge you. And then secondly, everyone else will too. So this mirrors an earlier statement that he made when he said, If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. He's not talking about a workspace salvation. You better forgive other people or God's not going to forgive you. You better not judge people or God's going to judge you. That's not what the point is. The point is, if you've been transformed in a real way by his mercy and grace, then you won't be a real judgmental, fault-finding kind of person. So someone who's truly received grace will want to extend that grace to other people. Now, in verse 3 and 4, we see this really comical situation. This is toward the end of his sermon, and so I think maybe the crowd is getting a little bit, you know, they're getting tired. And so Jesus, I think, saves his funniest stuff for the last part of this sermon. And this gets really comical in verses 3 and 4 because he says, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? So let's just follow this through for a moment. He brings up this analogy of a log being in someone's eye and where that person notices something small in someone else's eye. So just imagine for a moment if this played out in real life, where you have this two-by-four somehow sticking out of your eye like this, and you just, you walk into a room, excuse me, you walk into a room, and it's a, it's, let's say it's Monday, and you had a great weekend, and you walk in, and you're just like walking over to your friend, and you're like, hey, 
How's it going? And they're looking at you funny, and you're just like, how was your weekend? They say, great. And you look at them, and you go, hey, hang on a second. Do, anybody got a Q-tip? You got a Q-tip? Okay, um, can, 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 can you hold this for a second? Can you hold that for a second? Okay. Let me get a Q-tip. You, you got something in your eye. Could, could I help get that out? Is that okay? Can I get a Q-tip and get that out of your eye? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, so, so this is the analogy he's using, is that you've got this massive log sticking out of your face, and you're going over to your friend, and you're noticing this little tiny piece of something in his eye. And you're the one that's noticing that, and you're saying, hey, uh, you got something in your eye, and he's looking at you like you're crazy, right? And this is the picture he's trying to paint for us. Now, what's interesting is that what was Jesus' earthly job? He's a carpenter, right? So he's probably speaking from experience when you get some sawdust in the eye. How many of you have ever gotten something in your eye? should be all of us, right? You get something in your eye, and it is debilitating, isn't it? I mean, anyone here get, like, an eyelash stuck in your eye? And it's the worst feeling um, in the world. Like, you're, if, if you're someone who is... Who is um, ever had that experience, I mean, it is debilitating. I mean, the worst is when you're, you're driving, for those of you that drive, and you're driving down the road, and an eyelash gets in your eye, and you're like swerving all over the road, and you get to pull over and try to get the thing out of your eye. It's just debilitating, right? There's nothing worse than that. So he's speaking probably from experience of getting something in his eye when he's doing carpentry work before he started his ministry. And when something gets in our eye... We drop everything to get it out, don't we? Something very tiny in your eye. You feel it. You're sensitive to it. You know it's there because your, your body has physical senses that lets you know when those kind of things happen to you. So you, you drop everything to get that out of your eye. And now imagine this scenario. So if, 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 what, if what played out physically over here happen to us spiritually. That's what he's talking about. It's what happens to us all the time. When I was in school, when I, in my earlier years, much earlier years, um, we would do this little stupid prank. We would, one of us would stuff our mouth just full of Oreos, but then not swallow. We would just have our mouth full of Oreos. You can't even see our teeth. Walk over to a friend like this with our teeth showing and be like, I think I see something in your teeth. And he's looking at us like, what? And we got like Oreos coming out of our mouth. And it's the same idea, the same spiritual idea, that you're going to show someone else their fault when you've got this massive issue in your life. And as ridiculous as this sounds, that's exactly what many of us do spiritually. This would, to get serious for a minute, this would be like if you keep catching your friend looking lustfully at people as they pass by, and you confront them about that. And meanwhile, in your own life, you're looking at pornography, or you're asking people to send photos of themselves to you. And I'm not saying that looking lustfully at someone is just a speck or just no big deal. But if that's what you're doing, you're in no position to be the one confronting that other person. You're in no position to be the one who is 
trying to take the speck out of their eye when you've got this massive log sticking out of your face. So go back to the analogy for a moment. Getting a small speck in the eye is, is debilitating to us, and you feel it. But imagine having a log, a two-by-four sticking out of your eye, and you don't feel it. Your physical senses would need to be dead to not be able to feel that sticking out of your face. So that's the picture. How spiritually insensitive would we need to be to not feel that? To not feel this massive thing that's in your life that no one else can, that you can't see, but everyone else can see. You need to be spiritually dead to not be able to sense that, that that's in your life. It needs to be removed. And so that's what you and I do. We deaden ourselves to our sin. But notice everyone else's sin. There is this satirical site, you may have heard of it, called the Babylon Bee. Anybody read some of the stuff they put out? It's pretty funny. Um, it's more like maybe college age and above as far as like humor. But um, I think it's pretty hilarious. And I saw this last week. This is a picture in one of the articles. This is a, a sin graph of how most of us look at the sins we struggle with and the ones that other people struggle with. So the ones I struggle with are usually like a one, really not that bad. But the sins of other people are more like that over there on the right. And it's how most of us look at my sin relative to somebody else's sin. So we exaggerate the faults of others but minimize our own faults. So Jesus warns, don't be a judge or a hypocrite. But there is something else that we're to be. And it's a, it's a brother and a sister. A brother or a sister. You can't be both, right? Brother or a sister to one another. Someone who cares enough to lovingly confront someone else. So everyone uses verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And we use it to say, you have no, no right to ever confront someone else in their sin. Who are you to judge, you say? But I want to encourage you to keep reading. Again, you can't, don't take verses out of context. And don't, don't speak as if you're speaking for the whole passage. You've got to read on. So keep reading. We're to remove the log out of our own eye so we can do what? Do you see it in the passage? You're to remove the log out of your own eye so you can do what? You see it? So that you can see clearly to help your brother or sister take the speck out of their own eye. He's still saying the speck needs to be removed. And you can become someone who helps him or her if you deal with the larger issue in your own life. A guy named John Chrysostom says this, Correct him, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. So imagine a doctor. You go in for a diagnosis, and a doctor says to you, well, the test shows that you have the black plague, but who am I to judge? You can go on about your day, right? You're going to say, no, I want you to judge rightly, and then give me the proper medication, doctor. Whatever that is for the black plague, please give it to me. 
So you want the doctor to judge rightly and give you proper medication. This is how you need to approach your relationships, that you're confronting someone so that something can be removed that's, that's harmful and hurtful to someone else. So most of us, here's how most of us operate, especially at your age in the body of Christ, is you all know in this room that you have faults. I mean, you know that you have faults and you have your own sin struggles. So most of us just sit in our own sin and we say things like, well, you know, I mean, I know my friend is doing that, but I mean, who am I to judge? I mean, I struggle with this. Who am I to judge that person? And you just paralyze yourself from never helping anybody else. He says, deal with yourself so that you can help someone else. This is what should be happening in our Wednesday night groups, in our Sunday night growth groups. This is the kind of relation that should be happening in those groups. And then verse 6, this gets a little confusing. Verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now this statement seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? Okay, now we're talking about dogs and pigs. What, how did, nice segue, Jesus. How did we get here? But it really fits the previous ideas. Earlier, Jesus said we should be merciful and slow to judge. But here he's showing us the other side of the coin. Because at some point, we have to be discerning and use wisdom. And he's showing us here how to do that. So what is the holy or the pearl that he's talking about? It's really the gospel. Do you realize what Jesus has said in verse 6? There are certain people that we don't keep preaching the gospel to. Now, that doesn't sound like something he would say, does it? There are certain people that we shouldn't keep on preaching the gospel to. That seems unlike him. Who are these dogs and pigs he's talking about? When we think of dogs and pigs, we think of, um, you know, something pretty tame. Is, is TJ still in the room? He was here a while ago. Is he still here? There he is at the back. You don't need to stand up. Everyone knows TJ. But TJ has this puppy right now. Have, have they all seen your puppy? They've, it's like an awesome... Don't go get it. Don't go get it. But he has this puppy that he's brought to the office a few times last, last month or so. And it's, it's like a little miniature bear cub. It has no tail. It's the cutest thing. And whenever my office is at the end of the hallway in the church, and my door's open, I know when someone has brought a puppy or a baby into the church office. Do you know how I know? Because I hear all the ladies down the hallway. Just for like an hour, I'll hear nothing but, oh, it's so cute. Oh, my goodness. It's so amazing. And I'm like, Puppy or baby, one of the two, is in the building. So TJ brings his dog up there. But most of us, when we think of dogs or pigs, we think of something like, okay, dogs? In our context, dogs are, what's wrong with dogs? That's our context. When you think about pigs, I mean, some of you guys are in the the livestock show. Not, y'all aren't in the livestock show, but you have animals that you raise to put... (laughs) In the livestock show. Be careful how I say things up here. But you have livestock that you have raised. And whenever I've gone to see those things at the expo center that some of you guys have been involved in, I'm walking through and I see 
pigs. And I look at these pigs and I think, man, my grandfather had a farm and he had some pigs. And these pigs are not like the ones that I saw when I was growing up. Because the pigs that you guys put in that, that, that whatever they call that, that fair, those pigs are so clean and so done up. Like that's, that's like pig prom for them. They're, they're like the best they'll ever look is right there. And when I grew up seeing pigs, they were dirty, filthy animals. So Jesus, when he says dogs and pigs, back then dogs were dirty scavengers. And pigs were dirty, and they're considered unclean by the Jews. So why does Jesus use this image to describe people? That didn't seem like something he would do. Well, when you see, if you ever fed a pig, whenever you throw at them, they just put their face in the muck, and they just, they just chew. They just chew at whatever, and whatever goes in goes in, mud, corn, whatever. So the analogy is, if you were to give throw a pearl at a pig in the mud, they couldn't appreciate the value of it. They have no ability to use wisdom and discernment and know what it is and know how valuable it is. And they're just going to trample under it. They're going to try to eat it and then spit it out because they can't. So when they, they have no way to tell how valuable that pearl is. In the same way, someone who has been told the gospel over and over and over again. But they mock or they scoff or they want nothing to do with the gospel or Jesus. They completely turn off anything. Receptivity toward the gospel is just non-existent. He says, so that person, he's not, he's not being mean and saying that person is a dog or a pig. He's not saying it in this dry. He's just saying, like a dog doesn't know how to handle something that's sacred and holy, and like a pig doesn't know the value of a pearl, this person doesn't know the value of the gospel that's being given to them. And they've shown over and over again how they want nothing to do with it. So his point is, Jesus is saying there are certain people that you stop preaching to. And you move on. And you go find someone who might be receptive. Why waste all of your energy on someone that has shown time and time again they want nothing to do with it. And we see this play out in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples preaching the gospel, and he says something surprising in verse 14. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. If they reject it, they move on to the next town. And then we see in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, preaching the gospel to a whole city, and some of the Jews are interrupting him during his sermon and contradicting him. And while they're, so while they're preaching, and what does Paul do? In, in the middle of a sermon, Paul says, you know what, forget you guys, I'm going to the Gentiles. In a sermon, Paul says, forget you, I'm going to the Gentiles. So how do we apply that? I told you before about my uncle who passed away about three years ago from a brain tumor. And he was this really smart doctor who worked at MD Anderson in Houston. And he has been an atheist. I've known him my whole life. And 
he's an atheist. He was an atheist. So he asked me to do his funeral, and I'm telling him, well, Uncle Mark, I'd love to serve in that way, but, you know, you and I don't really believe the same things. And he said, yeah, I understand that, but I'd still love for you to do my funeral. And so I was able to say some things at his funeral, but it's weird doing a funeral for someone that's not a believer, was a complete atheist his whole life, and unless something happened in the last moments of his, of his life, I know he's not with Jesus. Just a really sad, sad funeral to do for someone. But is my uncle someone that I shouldn't have been speaking the gospel to in his last days? I would say actually no, because he was still willing to talk. Although he was a bit of a scoffer and this intellectual guy who just never wanted to really talk about it in a real way, he would still let me talk about it. So if someone says, no, I'll talk about it with you, I'm going to talk about it with them. But for someone who is scoffing and rejecting and just says, I want nothing to do with that, for that person, you move on and you move on to someone that might be open to what you have to say. So I think there's a way we can apply that in our lives. Move on to someone else who might be more, more receptive. So dogs and pigs were not just unbelievers. They are people who have heard and defiantly rejected. Now Jesus shifts gears in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. We find it here. This isn't working anymore. All right, you want to click that, TJ, please? Verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give, who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, this is also a misquoted and misused passage. Some use this verse to talk about, hey, God will give you whatever you want. Just ask, seek, and knock. will give you whatever you want. And it's like prosperity gospel. That's not what it's about. Right here, Jesus instructs our prayer life. We see a progression of asking and seeking and knocking. And this shows he wants us to persist in prayer with him. Now, I think we can connect this verse about dogs. We can connect this passage to the one about dogs, pigs, and pearls. Because some people don't realize the value of the gospel, so we move on from them. But some people get it. Some people understand what they have. And that person will ask, seek, and knock because they realize that God is good and he gives us just what we need. So look back at his analogy of when a, when a parent has a kid and the kid comes and asks for something that's, they're hungry, they want some food. So when my kid asks for a sandwich, I'm not making them a peanut butter and gravel sandwich. Or if they ask for a fish, I'm not giving them a live rattlesnake. Now, if, if my kids ask for food, I'm not going to give them something that will, will hurt them. Okay, that's not true. Other night, I took them to Freddy's. And if you know Freddy's, right, not the healthiest stuff. And so my kids order a burger, fries, and custard. I didn't get anything because I want to live a long life. But most parents want to give good gifts to their kids. 
So how much more does God want to give good gifts to his kids? Now, when he says, you, you who are evil, he's not saying that you're all murderers. He's saying, you who are fleshly, those of us that are just regular people, regular humans, we're, we're sinners, right? We're all sinners. He says, even a parent that's like that wants to give good gifts to their kids. How much more does God want to give good gifts to his kids? So you might summarize it like this. God doesn't always, I need to like fix my slides here. There we go. No, that's not it. Let's go back. There we go. God doesn't always give us our request, but he gives us what we need. So when you think of, of prayer, think of it in those terms. He didn't give us our requests, but he gives us just what we need. So part of our growth means that we learn to ask for the right things. We're not asking for the material, but for the spiritual. So think back to last week. We talked about two treasures. We talked about um, earthly treasure, heavenly treasure. We said you ask for heavenly treasure. So the things you pray for are heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. We talked about two visions. We ask for the right vision to see things clearly. We talked about two masters. We asked for strength to serve the right one. We talked about anxiety last week and worry. We asked for help in our anxiety. So you ask for the right things when you ask, seek, and knock. We ask to be able to see our own sin, to be able to see the log in your own eye so you can help remove the speck of dust from someone else's eye. You learn to pray for the right things. And he may not give us our request, but he always gives you what you need. I've been convicted by this recently because... I'm a pastor at a church, and I live on the street with some of the people I know, some of the people I don't know, and I've been convicted recently, especially how few of my neighbors I know and how infrequently I pray for them. So recently, one morning, and this doesn't happen a lot, I'm not trying to sound spiritual, but it doesn't happen a lot, but I got up one morning and I was just thinking, I started praying for this next-door neighbor house next to us. We don't, don't really know them. They're kind of new to the neighborhood. And just started praying that God would give us a way in to share the gospel with them and just that it might happen. Later on that morning, I'm preparing a sermon in my study in the house, and I look out the window, and I see a police car and a fire truck and an ambulance in front of that house. And I said, Courtney, um, can you go check on them? Because, like, something's happening over at the house. So, But no one's, like, really scurrying around really frantically, so I'm thinking it doesn't seem like they're all hurrying, so it's an emergency, but it doesn't seem like everyone's going crazy here. So she waited for them to do what they're going to do, and then she went over to check on the neighbor, and there's the mom outside on the front porch there, and Courtney says to her, hey, is everything okay? And she says, she tells the story, she says, well, my daughter, who's a 12-year-old, who has some mental health issues, and she does some self-injury and some self-harm, she took a knife and jammed it into her own leg. And then she, her mom walks in and sees it, and of course has to call 911 to get this thing out of her. So they take her to the hospital. They got to remove the knife from her leg at the hospital, of course. And my wife is sitting there with the mom just saying, oh my gosh, I can't, that's just awful. I can't believe that happened. And and this lady says to my wife, she goes, do you all go to church anywhere around here? And my wife says, well, yeah, actually we do. And my husband's a pastor at a church. She's, oh, really? They begin to talk. And my wife ends up praying with her, coming back over to the house. And she says, Dave, this lady wants to go to church with me on Sunday. 
So that last Sunday, this lady comes to church with Courtney and sits in the main service and was so moved by the service in here last Sunday in our, in our main service. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, we were praying for a chance to share the God. I don't want some girl stabbing herself in the leg, right? That's not how I thought it would go down. But you see, sometimes when you just ask, seek, and knock, and you persist in prayer, sometimes God does, listen, I don't know how God works. Just telling you what happened. But listen, he wants us to ask, seek, and knock. That much we know, and persist in prayer. Last verse, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Remember how we summarize the law? Love God, love others. As we wrap up this section on relationships, and we're asking, what should I do? I know many of you are asking the question, what should I do in this situation that I'm in right now with a friend? Well, Look at verse 12. How would you want someone to be towards you? You've got to confront a really tough situation. And someone's got a log sticking out of their face and they can't see it. Everyone else can see it. And so ask yourself the question, how would I want, one some, how, how would I want someone to come to me and confront me? that might be how you need to go and confront them. Just think that through in your mind. If you're thinking about some, if you're thinking about saying some hard things to a friend, think about how you'd want them to do that to you. What attitude, what tone would you want them to have? You see, this whole section is about how we relate to each other. And I know whenever we talk about these kinds of relationships, it's a sore spot for many of you here in this room. I want to tell you firstly that the Christian community is supposed to be a family. There's a reason why the Bible describes us as brothers and sisters. Those are family terms. But it's also common for brothers and sisters to fight a lot. I have kids, I know. Secondly, it's important for us to keep these relationships healthy because our witness depends upon it. What I often hear from high school students are things like, I just don't connect with people my age, or I just don't get along with other girls, or I just don't get along with other guys, or I have better friends outside the church than inside. And some of us say these things as if it's just the way it's always going to be. That's not how it has to be. So I'll leave you with this statement. I want you to let God's grace begin to transform you into, the, into a person who extends the grace that you have received. Become that kind of person. You let the gospel transform you. You become a person that has friendships that are centered upon the gospel and his grace and his mercy in your life. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables.